Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. Uh, I'm delighted uh, to have as my guest today Vitaly Katzenelson. He is the author of the just-published Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life, just out from Harriman House. He is also the host of a a website, Contrarian Edge, a newsletter, and he is, when he has uh, some spare time, the CEO of a registered investment advisor, IMA, in uh, Colorado. Vitaly, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Uh, it's it's my pleasure. Thank you. So normally I am interviewing authors who have traditional books on uh, topics either of finance uh, and investing or sometimes politics or sometimes Russian history or sometimes Soviet history or sometimes miscellaneous. But this is the first time I've had the pleasure of interviewing someone who actually ticks all of those boxes in the same book, which is actually about philosophy, but covers all of that territory. And the the first question I have for you is, as a a well-known value investor and and a fairly prolific social media commentator, nevertheless, how did you decide or come to the conclusion that you wanted to to mix all of these in in a blender and have it come out so well? Well, the come out so well part, I did not know when I started that it would or would not. But uh, okay, let's see. So this was actually very gutsy. So okay, so let's let me let's start with this. Okay, when I started writing, I only wrote about investing, and for the first many many years of my you know my writing career, I wrote about investing. Over time, I would start adding personal stories to my article. So, uh, so what happens, I write an article, it's published in Financial Times with an institutional investor, and I would send it out in the, initially to just to my friends. But then over time, they had more people subscribe to it, and I've been sending out to basically my articles to, to strangers who you know, did not know how I look or how I sound. They just read my articles. And I would write about the classical music. I uh, would write about... Uh, Kind of my kind of uh, my personal adventures, and over time, what happened was people started to write back to me and say, 
wow, it's kind of interesting. I came to you because I stumbled on your investment articles, but I'm really staying as a subscriber because of your articles about life. And then over time, like I wrote a lot more articles about life and people would actually reach out to me and say, it would be so great if you published the book. And I'll be honest, I always dismissed it because I, I always thought who would wants to read a you know, book published by me about, about life. Like, because think about it. I, I'm a chartered financial analyst. I have a two degrees in finance. I run an investment firm. So when I write about when I write about uh, investing, I feel very comfortable with that. When I write about life, I always kind of I'm pushing my boundaries of my knowledge every single time. Um, anyway, but then what that, but then what happened was August 2020. I was gonna write an article about Tchaikovsky and how he struggled composing uh, a sixth And um, when I finished writing that article, I realized, oh my God, this could actually help. Like that was very helpful for me to go through this and write in it. But I also realized I could help a lot of people who are struggling with any kind of creative endeavor. It doesn't have to be writing uh, a sextet or a symphony. It could be just writing or doing anything creative. And then I realized I actually have written a lot of articles that you know, if I put them together, they could actually help people. And so, and this is coming from the kind of a capitalistic pig, but my first initial reason to write it, and that's the reason actually that's kind of I stuck to, uh, was extremely altruistic. I just really wanted the book to help people. Okay, and uh, so that's how kind of that's how the idea for the book came together. And what I did, I literally went through all my articles uh, that I wrote, you know, kind of edited them, put them in a Word document, and I was going to self-publish them. And uh, then I get an email from Herman House, and I met them a few years before. And uh, they said, Vitaly, you were working on this investment book. How's it going? And I said, that the investment book, it's not really dead, but kind of, you know, not, not going well. But I have this idea. And I, email, and I, and I wrote an introduction for, you know, kind of explaining why, you know, why I want to you know, do this. And I sent it to them. And I honestly expected to get an email saying, and they're British, so it would, I expect to be very polite email saying, Vitaly, congratulations on this project, good luck. To my surprise, they actually reacted and they were very complimentary and said, let's do it. So when I got email from them, now I was questioning their sanity. So I actually went back to my friends who published books, you know, books with them and asked them what they thought of Harriman House. And you know, they said, it's a great publisher. So that's basically, you know, kind of, this is kind of the, how this book came about. And this is where I got idea for the book. Well, I, I think it highlights kind of the rich life that you've had, that uh, there's a lot going on. Very few value managers spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the creativity cha- creativity challenges of classical composers, not to mention the issue of philosophers, other the topics that you get through get to in the book. So let, let's talk a little bit about the structure of the book, because in addition to the, the, the mix of genres and the, the philosophical underpinnings, the format's unusual. If you came to me and said, Vitaly, you need to write a book about your life. There is no way I could have done it. There is no way I could have done it. It's just, so it's just, it's to me, 
like I wouldn't even know where to start. So because this book originally was a basically collection of stories I wrote about uh, my trip to Santa Fe with my kids and my father, or uh, my daughter playing chess, or our trip to, uh, or how I introduced my kids to classical music, or about or what I wrote about Tchaikovsky before or List, etc. So, the just remember the it's very important that the book started out as just a collection, like as like I'm gonna take my life stories and my music, you know, stories about music, and put them into, into one thing. However, as I was going through this process, I was rewriting a lot, like, and I and also I probably wrote half a book. Like the so the so in the process of going and editing, it inspired creativity, and I wrote a lot more. Um, like in fact, there is a Stoics you know, a section about Stoics, which is about 30 or 40 percent of the book. That section did not exist before this book, so I you know that was, was a completely new section, and I, I just. Um, and I tried to, like, I realized that traditional book usually traditional books usually have an arc. Like when I wrote two investment books, they all had an arc, you know. And I, they were traditional books. This one was anything but. But I realized that, um, like, I think the way I would want the reader to read it, the way I wrote it, is to basically, you said it's almost every chapter is almost like an email landing in your inbox. And that's how I approach this book. So, yes, you can read it. You know, it may take you a year to read it. You know, well, not maybe less than a year. I think it's 75 little chapters or more or less. So it may take you, you know, two and a half months to read it. Um, and that's that's absolutely fine. You know, um, a friend of mine, a uh, long friend of mine read it, and he said he read it twice, and he said, I would just read it, uh, finish the chapter, sit down and think about it. That's, you know, that's how, you know, and that that's probably the best way to read it. Um but there is an arc, like you know. After I was I was done after the book came together, I went back and I realized there is an arc to the book, because and especially, I was shocked when I wrote the conclusion, uh, the art of meaningful life chapter. It's kind of grabbed all these little pieces together from previous chapters, and brought them like and and I, there was really a conclusion to it, which is uh, accidental probably a lot more than you know I, like I. I do not like. Um, well, okay. Whenever you write or you do anything creative, the final product a lot of times surprises the creator, and I'm as a creator of this book is or is surprised as much by this book as people who sit down and read it for the first time because it was a uh, something just happened. You know, I've just spent a lot of time on this, but I did not think it's going to look like that. Well, it, it came out very well. It speaks to me. I think it will speak to people from a variety of professions. I happen to have an arc that's uh, a little closer to yours than maybe many people given personal life history, but even for just people in investing or people interested in philosophy or people not in investing, immigrants, for people interested in classical music, for people who are artists. I love 
your account of artisans and artisanship and how important it is and how we need to cherish it. And we'll get to that in a moment. But let's start with uh, the beginning of the arc, which is also a kind of a trope, which is a nice one. I like to hear, and frankly, in troubled times, I like to hear it more. And that is the the story of a classic uh, of a, a successful immigrant story that kind of ends well. Uh, we can't hear enough of those. And so, you know, the beginning, maybe the most traditional part of your book is a discussion of your, your immigrant background. Beautiful, beautiful accounts of your father, your relationship with your father. Yeah. So I shall tell you how the, let me tell you how that chapter, like, so that chapter you're talking about me, uh, born in Russia, made in America. There was this, you know, it's probably the longest, one of the longest chapters in the book, actually. Um, and the most traditional one, right? Because there is like it, that in itself could be just like a long story that's kind of has the whole arc, right? Um, so, so I was born in Russia uh, to a Jewish family, and um, I grew, spent my the first eighteen years of my life in Murmansk. Most people would not recognize the name unless I tell them. Do you remember the hunt for the Red October? That that fictional submarine actually came from Murmansk. And so if you look at the Russia, map of Russia, just look up and to the left at the very, very top where like by Norway, by the top tip of Norway and Finland, that's what Murmansk is. So it's above Arctic Circle. There was very little sunlight in the wintertime. In fact, I think it was, a, I forget, a month or two where there was no sun. In fact, I would go like for, just imagine this, I would go to school, I don't know, in the morning, the sun would come out for 20 minutes at at noon and I would be still in the classroom and I would walk back and still dark. So you literally did not see sunlight for for a few months. And the irony of this is that that was normal to me. Like as I, I, so I've kind of immigrated to Denver, Colorado, which is the complete opposite because we have so much sunshine and so much sunlight here. But as I look back in my life, there was you know, this, what would look to me now is a very difficult, you know, kind of, it's very cold, dark, could be very depressing. Did not feel like, like it was, I did not feel like that when I was growing up. I had a phenomenal parents who loved me dearly. Um, my mom passed away when I was 10, uh, 11 years old. Um, and that was probably one of the most kind of difficult moments in my life as a child. And and here's the interesting part. This is how this chapter came about. Um, right before the pandemic, I just felt extremely personally very uneasy. Just there was something, some had some kind of anxiety. I couldn't really figure out wh- uh, uh, what anxiety was about, you know. And I just and I, and that was before pandemic, so I didn't even know that I have to worry about the pandemic. Um, so I went to a psychologist, and you know we talked for a long time, and then she said, Vitali, you. I think the reason you have problems, you never say goodbye to your mom. And what you need to do is actually sit down and write about it. And so what happened was, and the reason I never said goodbye to my mom, because what happened on on her 50th birthday, a day later, she was checked into the hospital with a tumor, with with a a brain tumor. (laughs) And, you know, this vibrant, beautiful woman went to the hospital and then, my father, for the summertime, he sent me to a pioneer camp. So you know, I didn't, you know, because he needed to do with my mom, you know, do with my mom. And so when I came back in, in August, September, I see this woman who has a short gray hair who doesn't recognize me. Uh, 
and she only recognizes my father and she calls him Papa and that and that's it. And then, you know, a few months later she passed away. And uh, so what happened was the, you know, she had you know, several brain surgeries and they promised my father that they would be successful and they weren't. And, you know, the, I guess I did not, you know, again, I was 10 or 11 years old. I didn't think about it, but my mom was coloring her hair. So she had this long, beautiful brown hair. And and the woman that I saw who didn't recognize me had a, you know, had a few, you know, brain surgeries, had this short, you know, short gray hair. Um, and so the woman that passed away was my mom, but that's, I could not really relate to her as being my mom. And, um, so this chapter actually was not even part of like this. I wrote this chapter actually for therapeutic reasons, for anything, you know, and just, just forcing myself to go back to the memory lane and relieve this very difficult memories at times. And I, and I have to tell you, it made a huge difference. I think the anxiety was gone. So, and so the chapter was born, was never to be published. And, and then when I, you know, when I started to work on the book, you know, a year later or something like this, I included it in the book. So, uh, but anyway, so that's kind of, that's the story of the chapter. Then we came to Denver in 1991. I came with my, 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 uh, my step, my father, my stepmother, my middle brother and my stepbrother. Um, and, uh, we lived in Denver since, and, uh, you know, I'm, very happy to live in America, I guess. That's, you know, but it's a, like, when you write immigrant stories, you usually want to hear about the hardship and et cetera. I didn't really have much. I mean, maybe I was, I was dumb and 18 years old and the hardship actually fell my on my parents. But uh, like, like, like we even flew, uh, when we flew from, uh, we flew from Moscow to Frankfurt and Frankfurt to Denver. In Frankfurt, they messed up our seats, so we flew first class. So, <laughs> so when people have this difficult, uh, difficult stories, they have to take five boats, etc., and go through Japan or China or whatever to get to the United States. I, I, I flew first class, so I'd say. <laughs> so my story did not have that traditional kind of. Uh, and that's a good thing, you know, uh, you know, kind of immigrant pain. But I do, but I kind of, I've been thinking a lot about this. And I realized that I have an advantage versus somebody who was actually born in the United States. Or immigrants in general have an advantage and for this reason, especially if you come from kind of poorer countries, not like France or Germany or something. But if you come from a kind of Eastern European countries or, or, could be China or India, um, that as an immigrant, it's almost like your fuel tank has more fuel because you see, yes, I have a disadvantage because I have an accent. I will always have an accent. It took me a few years to learn you know, language and it took me a few years to acclimate to the culture. That's fine. But I think the like immigrants, especially that came from difficult environment, they have this fuel tank that when the, this, you see the contrast where you came from where you, and where you can have here, and you just work harder. So that's kind of, so I don't look at me coming from Russia as being disadvantaged, not at all. I, I feel it's like, it's a, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's an advantage for me. So you're a young person coming over. The process of adjustment isn't super hard. A few words about your father and, and his adjustment and his painting, please. 
Yeah, so my father actually was very lucky. So when he was 58 years old, when he left Russia, at that point in time, he was um, he was teaching a, a his PhD and was teaching an electrical engineer in the Murmansk Marine Academy. It's important to understand he was a very respected professor at the most important educational institution in Murmansk. So all the top brass that basically was in high places, he taught them. So he was incredibly respected. He loved his job. And when we moved here, we were really worried about him because he had a lot to lose. He lost everything. He basically gave up everything for us. However, he ended up having a very mild transition because he always painted. You know, when he lived since he was seven years old, he painted as a hobby. I mean, it's a serious hobby. You know, it just, I guess the reason it's, you can call it a hobby because he did not sell his paintings in Russia. But he he was a serious painter. And uh, so when we came to the United States, he basically just switched professions and started to sell his art. And for this reason, he, um, I think the diff- like a lot of times what happens, you have these doctors and professors come to the United States and they end up driving taxis, you know. And for them, that's a, you know, it's a huge, you know, it's a huge difficulty and it's, a, uh, it's very painful. My father basically went from doing one thing he loved to do another thing he loved. So I'm sure when we came here the first couple of years, like he, he worried, you know, he, you know, he worried, you know, a lot more. But then, but other than that, you know, he's, a, you know, he actually had a very good life here and he still has a you know, good life here. Yeah. I, what I think uh, people should know as well, that your social media and your kind of written production includes a lot of, of uh, excerpts or, or copies or photos or JPEG, whatever they are of your father's art. So when you, when you, you get involved with Vitali, you also get as a bonus Vitali's, I believe his, his name is Naum, uh, his, his, uh, his artwork. It's an extra bonus and it's, it's just delightful to get in your value investing newsletter or financial commentary newsletter <laughs> the other side of the family, which is aesthetic and beautiful. And, and that's how I want to transition to another topic. And I've teased you about this before. You don't seem to like it. So I'm going to, um, that's why I'm going to push on it. I've kind of uh, called you a public intellectual and you, you, you bridle a little bit, but it seems to me to come from your, your immigrant background. You're a very, very thoughtful person with art and philosophy and music and public commentary. And in the United States, that's not as common as it is perhaps in Europe to have someone in the public arena uh, commenting on a variety of things from such a kind of a high level of, of erudition. We maybe are, uh, have a more practical culture, less European sensibility, where you, you train on something and you do something. If you're in a finance person, you're a finance person. You might enjoy music. You might enjoy reading philosophy, but you're uh, an investor or finance person. And what I think that you bring to the table, and I, I, I want to uh, embarrass you as much as possible, is that your engagement with investing or your engagement with philosophy or engagement with art and music is is improved by the other traditions. Being interdisciplinary makes you better all around. At least I, I would like to think that's the case. Would you accept that challenge that that understanding Tchaikovsky's struggles helps you run a business or and then thinking about the, the Stoics as we'll get to makes you a more patient value investor? I, cer- I certainly think so, but uh, maybe, maybe you don't. I, I don't know. 
I'll accept your challenge, but I just wanted to add to one point about my father before this. Um, you know, like how men say they read the Playboy for the articles. I mean, yeah. Uh, um, uh, and so I think people uh, read my uh, read my uh, newsletters for my father's pictures. <laughs> I don't think you're going to get a lot of argument about that. I think there are a lot of people who agree with you. Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, um, I, you know, I think the. I know the like the the reason the reason you get some pushback from me on the intellectual part is because I, I I know the borders of my ignorance when it comes to a lot of things. So I think there's a lot more. That people. makes you even more of an intellectual if you do know the borders <laughs> of your ignorance. So few, so few do. Uh, uh, but uh, so I, in addition to classical music, I like I like Freddie Mercury, uh, and he has the saying. The, uh, he has the song the. Uh, there must be more to life than this. And that stuck in my head forever. This, there must be more to life than this. In that case, this for me, being an investor. Um, and I found that if I just write about the same topic, like if you write about investing all the time, at some point, like there was a, there was a, there's a lot of, <laughs> the market goes through cycles. Like I just finished writing an article today, how I compared what happened uh, to stocks the last, you know, technology stocks of like eight months. It's very similar to what happened to dot-coms, right? So there is a, in a, at some point, it's kind of becomes a lot more craft and less art. It's just, you know, and I have to come up with new analogies to make it interesting for me. And if it's going to be interesting for me, then it's going to be interesting for the reader. But, I found that, like, I really enjoy learning new things that also lie not just in investing, but outside of investing. And initially, it wasn't like because I'm going to learn about Tchaikovsky because it's going to make me a better investor. Or I'm going to, you know, that's, you know, I don't don't think I'm that smart or that uh, Machiavellian. Um, But I... Started to like when I like give you an example. I started to write about classical music. Um, I would start to include to links to some pieces, and what happens to you? And I and then you would you would include a link to a piece. Well, just you know, putting a YouTube link, it looks very, um, it doesn't look good. So I would write about it, and I started to write about this. I you know I had to learn more. This is what happens to you when you know. So the the most important thing that happened to me as an as a kind of as an adult. I started writing because, and that reprogrammed my brain. That made me think a lot more, but it also changed the way I look at the world. It changed the way I look at the world because now when I look at the world, I look for stories. Now when I read, I read differently. I don't just read like a person, um, I, I read as a as a writer who's looking for sense and structure, but also with as a writer who is looking for stories, who is looking to connect, you know, things from different disciplines. And I think that's the, the reason I write about so many different topics because they are interesting to me. Um, and sometimes they're interesting to me for a while and then I lose interest. I wrote this, uh, like a, 11 articles about Tesla, which was actually just one lone article that I broke up into 11 articles. Um, and like the way my brain works, that topic is very interesting to me. So I worked on it for three months. I learned as much as I could about this. And then when I was done with that, I kind of lost interest, like in that, like in that very unique, because I learned as much as I wanted to learn about this. So um, 
so is this different than um, is this different than uh, most you know uh, people in the United States? I, I mean, look, look. I, I guess depends who you compare yourself to. Look at Charlie Munger, right? And this is a person who who is uh, reads uh, you know. Uh, everything's you know, you know, interested in many different disciplines. So you know. Uh, okay, so there are two of you: Charlie Munger and Vitaly Katzenelson. Okay, fair enough. You made your point. You're not unique. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to overrule you. Host overrule. You are uh, uh, wonderfully unusual. There aren't many people who can are equally comfortable in these endeavors, and I think it's incredibly uh, enlightening, important. Uh, insightful, useful to at least show others who feel they need to focus only on their one silo that no, maybe they can enjoy and integrate other things that have come kind of the, the tapestry of life. There are many elements and you, you have really highlighted that one. I want to point out because it really appeals to me. You clearly treat yourself as an artisan, as a writer artisan, but you also highlight other artisans, a number of them in popular culture. Uh, Jiru loves sushi is one of my favorite films. Uh, and I, I am understand how many years Monet spent working on Rouen and many of the other paintings year after year after year after year, the lily pads, the Chiverny, among others. And so uh, tell us about artisanship, because in the modern world, artisanship is quaint. It's in a country fair in a small town and you get your homemade jams and things like that. But you, you're, you're making, I think, a really important article that we need to encourage and support and view ourselves as artisans and, and promote artisanship as a way of life because it is, it is so important. And I think your book serves that purpose. So I was very lucky, like, you know, in life that I chose, I like uh, a lot of people go through life and they kind of stumble into professions and they end up doing things just because, uh, you know, they start working for a company because that paid them the most amount of money and they didn't know what they wanted to do for a living. So they kind of start doing that. Okay. I was lucky that I fell in love with investing was a very, you know, was a, when I was young. And so, as Warren Buffett says, you know, just uh, uh, do what you love and you never can work a day in your life. I'm not sure if he said it or somebody else did, but it's he could have said it if he did. Um, but the, so, like, the, if you're truly lucky to have a meaningful life, what you'll be doing, you, you're going to have a, a profession which you love, and then you're going to take it very seriously and you're going to dedicate yourself to that. And then you behave like an artisan. You're going to like, you know, you're going to have a soul in the game. You you're going to you never make any kind of sacrifices for financial reasons. You never uh, uh you know, cut you know, cut corners just to save money. You're going to you know, you're going to try to make this because that what whatever you're doing is going to be part of your identity. And um, so, but in anything you do, there's going to be an art part and a craft part. The, more, the longer than you do something, the more the art turns into craft. And so it's up to you to kind of keep adding art to it, kind of extending your uh, circle of competence and doing things that are a little bit un- um 
a little bit uh, difficult to do, a little bit has, has a little more uncertainty, a little bit more risk. And um, that's how I, like, that's kind of the life I have. That, you know, that's, you know, and I, I, and I have a luxury now that I only choose to do things I love. And I have a, lucky. I'm lucky because I have people here at my firm where anything that I don't love, I just delegate, you know, and I, and I, this is, you know, this is a kind of, it's, it's a unique situation, but, um, you know, so the, and I try to, whenever something feels like a craft to me, I usually either stop doing it or give it to somebody else to do. I'll give an example. I used to teach uh, investments at the University of Colorado at Denver. And I taught for maybe seven years, which is about 14 semesters. And maybe second or third year into it, after fourth or fifth semester, I found that I was not looking, like probably maybe, maybe it took me more than two years, maybe three or four years. Uh, I found that I was not looking forward to teaching as much anymore. Because it's, you know, because it's became became very uh I just, uh, just repetition, you know, because repetition kind of bored me. So what I started doing, I started preparing for classes. I would show up to class, open the syllabus and say, today we're going to talk about this. And then I would try to do things on the fly. Sometimes, you know, like my students would be better, you know, you know, would, would be, they, they, <laughs> they should be telling me how successful I was. But that's the only way I could, you know, I could keep coming back to teaching. And then after a while, I realized that actually I like writing more than I like teaching. And then I stopped teaching for that, you know, because it just became too much of a craft. Uh, but I think we always should look at life and see, you know, at everything we're doing and making sure that we don't just do it for money, but we really love what we're doing. Because we only have one life, right? And so if you spend eight or 10 hours a day doing something you hate or don't enjoy, that's a very miserable life. That's number one. Number two, even when you do something you love, you want to make sure that there is enough that you have a good balance between art and craft. And that's kind of, that's. So let's use that as the transition to sort of what appears to be if there's one arc or where the arc peaks, it is in the summation of all of these thoughts uh, towards a philosophy, which in your rendering is uh, closely aligned with the Stoics. And you you choose to introduce the Stoics and outline the Stoics and, and make a, a case that Stoicism is something that, again, craftsmen and parents and children and to some extent limited investors, but people living can benefit from the lessons of antiquity. Can you, can you summarize how Stoicism fits into this? Because uh, it, it seems to be where you've been trying to get to in the book is the opportunity to present the benefits of Stoicism as you have come across them. Yeah. So this book has is really you know kind of been like I dedicated the, the book to my kids, and I said and I in the dedication said to Joanna, Hannah, and Mia, Sarah because you don't read my emails, so that book is was written for my kids as well as well as for me, and Stoic philosophy was probably the most selfish part of the book for me because I was writing it as much like a lot more for myself because I really wanted to learn it, and. I wanted to internalize it. The way I internalize things, I write. That's that's how I internalize it. And um, my my kind of adventure with Stoicism started with Epictetus, with one quote, where he says, there are some things that are up to us, 
Some things aren't. Some things internal, we can control them. Some things aren't. Um, and this is like such a little quote. And what does it really mean? Well, what you find is basically most things in life you have no control over. None. You, how people, how other people treat you, what weather is going to be tomorrow, the street lights, like when you drive somewhere, you have zero control over that. Even the grade you get on a test, you have very little control over. What you have control is over your actions, over your thoughts. And the, the what Stoicism did for me, it's basically provided an operating system that works for me. For some people, I know that religion creates this operating system. For me, this was an operating system that did not require me to have a friend, you know, kind of a friend in the sky. It's a system that basically allowed me to look at the world and minimize the volatility of negative emotions. And so that's that's kind of that's kind of how I arrived to to Stoicism. And the beauty of that you know, is that when you, you know, it's a, when you read Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius or Seneca, some of the things you thought they wrote it yesterday, even though they wrote it two thousand years ago, because despite us having new iPhones and electric cars and all these different things, we're still humans haven't really changed that much. Or you know, in terms you know, of last two thousand years, we're still wrestling with the same issues. So I remember Seneca in one of his essays, he was talking about how we constantly get distracted by outside things. He wasn't, he wasn't writing about Facebook or Twitter. I guess with 2,000 years ago, they were also distracted by a lot of nonsense. So anyway. I, I, will, make, I will oversell the book and, and make the point that at least for me, and I think perhaps for others, the nuggets of wisdom uh, reflected in the Stoics as you, you present them are useful to practitioners, to artisans, to people going through life and trying to be uh, thoughtful. Philosophy classes from college, not so much. But the the excerpts of Stoicism on handling practical matters, handling how to approach conflict, how to approach frustration, uh, I, I've personally found them very useful. And so I, I just want to thank you, uh, thank you for that. The other section I found useful. Uh, was on classical music. I'm a, a, a late convert to classical music, uh, more as an adult than as a child. I was not raised in a musical household. But you're obviously very passionate about it, as, as am I. My wife tells me to stop posting on Facebook about the local symphony because they're, they're going to think I'm a, a fanatic and a stalker, and I pretty much am, and that's, I'm happy to, to wear that label. But you, you also make an effort in describing the challenges of the classical composers. And you, you post on social media every Saturday morning about what you're listening to. It's wonderful. Please keep doing that. Uh, but the, the, the challenges that they uh, encountered in, in their lives and in the, the, product of, uh, the process of creation, of being a craftsman, and uh, uh, it, it, it's, again, linked to the other craftsmen, linked to writing, linked to living. But not everyone is so passionate about classical music. How did that happen? And, and how do you see the links between the acts of, uh, I, I, to me, they're obvious, but worth articulating, uh, the creation of music and, and the creation of writing and of the other areas of the intellect that you're interested in? Oh, my God. Uh, let me see. So the, so I, I, you know, I kind of had, a, as Warren Buffett would say, I won a, a very lottery because I had a, Terrific parents, uh, and uh, they loved classical music. So, 
and I was also lucky that I was the third child. And let's say my 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 older two brothers went through hell when my parents wanted them to play piano. And they and I think they at least for my older brother for sure, for oldest brother for sure, any love he had for classical music was beaten out of him because he had to take music lessons. And uh so I I was spared for well two reasons really. First of all, I think my parents learned their lessons on, the, on my brothers. And second of all, my father, my, 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 when my mom passed away, my father did not have the energy to kind of, to, you know, kind of, uh, to push me into classical music. That's why out of three brothers, uh, my, my middle brother, Alex, he likes classical music, but he doesn't have the same passion and drive I do. Uh, and my oldest brother, I don't think he even listens to it. Um, so, <laughs> so my parents, so the, my parents just listened to it. And uh, they would take us to concerts, etc. And uh, during the concerts, they would buy us uh, some desserts, which was in, Ru- in Soviet Russia. That was a big deal, um, and that's how they got me to go to the concerts. And so, as a as an um, like this is can be horrible analogy, but that's the best I got. You know, after you get hooked on cocaine, pot or marijuana is not as potent, and uh, people usually go from marijuana to cocaine, not the other way around. To me. Classical music, like cocaine, is so potent and so powerful that it's very difficult for me to listen to anything else, which is not necessarily a good thing uh, because I have a good friend who is a conductor of classical music at the local orchestra, and he listens all different music. But I mostly listen to classical music because it's just that's, you know, that's my addiction, I guess. Um, the... There is so much we can learn from composers, and I and I think this is a we don't th- when we listen to complete classical music, complete music, what we don't realize how much suffering, anxiety, um, uh, fear uh, went into composing this music, and uh, and and the reason it's important to understand because any it's important to realize that any creative activity has pain. It's not, it's a, it's a, like you're lucky if you have a lot of good problems in life. Writing is like for me, is a good problem. Okay. And, uh, and for these composers who loved classical music, who loved composing, it was a good problem. And it's the reason it's a problem because it's not always, it's not always, um, um, it's it's not always a you know kind of a sunny, blissful experience. A lot of time it's painful. So uh, let me give you an example of two problems. One which is a good problem, another one is not a good problem. Um, I work out twice a week. I have a trainer. Okay, and the reason I have a trainer is because it's very difficult for me to actually push myself to go to the gym, and actually push myself when I work when I work out. I I wish. I, I worked. I, I, I wish I worked out without working out. In other words, that pain, like the benefit again I get from working out, which I understand very well what it is. I wish I could get that benefit without suffering. I do when I work out with my trainer. I would not say the same thing about writing. Like it's a very painful experience a lot of times, but I would not give it up. I would like going through that is very meaningful to me. So that's it. The two different problems. One, I, I still get through it. I still, you know, that's why I probably, don't, you know, I 
maybe I should work out three times a week, but I, I feel like working out two times a week is, is already a victory for me. Um, but if you, so anyway, so that's a, so when I look at these composers and I look at this, why I wrote about Tchaikovsky, listen, my favorite composer who wrote this incredible music and who, uh, struggle throughout his life composing this music and then you like um uh, w- w- one of the interesting stories i had there was about berlioz when he wrote Sim- uh, symphony fantastique and just like the story of why he wrote the music it just it's a it's a it would make a great movie right because he fell in love with this uh actress and uh she would completely she would not notice his existence so he rented an apartment across the street from her. And basically, as I understand, he did drugs for eight months and wrote the symphony. And because he wrote the symphony for her, because he went to win his her, her heart, the, the symphony premiered, she was not there. But then some years later, or maybe a year later, she found out that he wrote the symphony for her. She wrote the symphony. They ended, they ended up getting married. And then they had a miserable life and they got divorced. So, so, so the conclusion is not necessarily... The best conclusion, but what's really incredible about the symphony that was the first, I think, symphony that was a, a program symphony. A program music. When you think about program music, think about opera. You have it's opera is basically kind of a play with symphony and singing, right? Like you know, like, uh, 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 symphonies before Berlioz were just were not programmatic. There was no theme. Well, Symphony Fantastique was a programmatic music because he had this whole storyline mapped out inside of it. Why, why this is important? Well, Berlioz started uh, taking music classes very late in his life, when he was 12 or 13 years old. I think you know, Mozart by this point probably wrote five symphonies. I'm not sure about this, but he could have. Um, and so he did not get traditional music education. And therefore, when he was writing it, he did not know what the rules were. And because he didn't know the rules, he, he didn't know he was breaking them. It's a lot more difficult to break the rules once you know them. It's a lot easier to break them if you don't know they exist. And so he's, so there is a something like, a, like a scientist would say, he would basically approach it from a first principles perspective. And there is so much... There is so that basically tells you there is so much value actually not to be uh, not to be exposed to traditional education. I think there was a uh, Mark Twain who said, "Don't let your uh, schooling to be uh, impact your education." Something like this or whatever. Uh, well, anyway, so it's, it's just another wonderful story, and there's a lot of stories like that. If you um, like, I'll give you one more. And this one is going to tie to investing. Uh, Beethoven. In later in his life, he was the most successful composer, period, worldwide. There was no number two. And he, when he wrote, he wrote nine, uh, Symphony Number no. Nine, people basically said, "That's it. It cannot get any better than this." The music at this point. People should stop writing music because the perfection has been created. First of all, I'm so glad Tchaikovsky, who lived later, and Rachmaninoff, and a lot of other composers, and Gershwin, and you know, did not 
buy into that because we would have been, you know, we, we would have missed out on so much more wonderful music, number one. Number two, we won't really know the the true impact that kind of Beethoven's shadow had on classical music because a lot of composers stopped, like did stop writing. They did stop publishing. So a lot of music never saw the light of day because they looked at what they created and like, well, probably not as good as Beethoven, so I'm not going to publish it. So one composer, which I write about, is uh, uh, Franz Schubert. He's one of my favorite composers. He published very little music during his life. He lived, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm probably exaggerated, but probably a few blocks away from Beethoven. I, he lived in Vienna. Um, and he could not bring himself to publish his music. F- uh, for that, that was one of the reasons for that. And the irony of this, in fact, one of his symphonies, I forget, either eighth or nine, was discovered after his death, and it would have died if it was, you know, if if um, if another composer, if another composer, Mendelssohn, did not suddenly stumble it on uh, when he visited uh, Schubert's brother's house. Anyway, the point I want to make is this: when we listen to Beethoven's music or Schubert's music today, we don't try to wait and say this is better than the other, they're equally good for different reasons. And why this is important? Because a lot of investors, I'm, I'm going to bring it back to investing a little bit. A lot of you know, um, investors are in the, in, the, in, the, in the shadow of another person whose last name starts with a B, Warren Buffett. Right? Um, and it's important to realize that Warren Buffett should not be your shadow and you should just look and see what you can learn from him and think about how he thinks and don't try to replicate him. Just be your own self and try to learn from him as much as possible and realize that there's absolutely no reason like why you have to compete with Buffett. There is no, you know, and uh, and if you are not kind of um, if you're not impacted by the dogma of kind of traditional investing, and if you approach life, life, if you approach life and investing as Berlioz did without knowing the rules, you may be able to create your own path, and uh, which may be different and even better than Buffett's. So, uh, so, anyway, so that's the long answer to your question about composers. But a very good answer that kind of ties everything together. And and I think with that tying everything together, I jotted down here Socrates' uh, supposed statement that the unexamined life is not worth living. I think for you, Vitali, the corollary is that the very well-lived life should and must be closely documented. And and basically, uh, that's what you've done in uh, uh, Soul in the Game. It's the life of the mind applied to everyday activities. I think that's tremendously useful. There are no robots here. There are no simple algorithms. Let's end with your stop eating sugar anecdote and when and why we can look forward to either the next volume or where uh, listeners can find your other written work. That's one of my favorite stories. I actually, I don't, the, the problem is I don't know where I learned this, so I can't really attribute it properly to, uh, but the, anyway, so the, uh, the mother brings her son to Dalai Lama and she says, my son eats too much sugar. Can you please help us? 
He looks at the mother, looks at the son, thinks about it, and he said, you know what, why don't you bring them in a month? Okay. So she brings it back in a month, and the Dalai Lama looks at the son and says, you need to stop eating sugar. Mother is completely bewildered. She's like, well, you could have said this like a month ago when I was here. He's like, you're absolutely right. But first, I had to stop eating sugar myself. So I, so this book, I, I, the last thing I want people to think that you have this perfect individual who does everything he wrote. I'm striving to do this. And, uh, and in fact, um, me putting this on paper, it's almost like there's an extra level of accountability. Um, but it's a, you know, all I'm trying to, you know, do is to go through life and improve a little bit every day, you know, and, uh, and learn something every day and just, you know, kind of, you know, stop eating sugar, you know, whatever I'm doing, you know, and, uh, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's basically it. And it's kind of been, the, the funny part was this, I, start to work on this book. And I, I, forget, I forget if I was halfway into the book or whatever. And I was telling my wife about this. And she looked at me and gave me this puzzled look. And she says, like, aren't you like too young to write a book about life? Like, shouldn't you be like, you know, in the late 70s or 80s to kind of look back and write a book about life? And I realized there is a point to it, you know. But then I realized that I have a very elegant solution to that. Uh, it's I'll just call this book Volume One, and as in fact, the, so this is you know this is actually uh, dovetails perfectly into your question. After the book was published, I already wrote four new chapters of the book for the new book, and so if if your listeners go to Soul in the game, uh, if they if they buy the book, wherever they want to buy it, you know, uh, and they go to soulinthegame.net, and email their receipt and their instructions there. Then we'll send them a four new chapters, even more by, even, you know, by this time of the book uh, that, are, you know, that basically haven't been published yet. Uh, so uh, so, this, so the, to answer your question, they can find the, more information about the book on the soulinthegame.net, n- uh, number one. Number two, my articles are basically available in a couple places. Uh, contrarian Edge, contrarianedg.com is where you can read my articles about investing, life, classical music. I actually, by the way, do have a website that just dedicated to classical music, nothing else. It's called myfavoriteclassical.com. And finally, if and, and I and I would assume that uh, they know that your people who listen to podcasts more likely will not listen than read, which is fine. Uh, they can re- listen to my articles on investor.fm. So they can basically, they can listen to my articles as podcasts, read to them, thankfully not by me. That's, uh, and you know, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Vitaly K on Twitter. So, yeah. Well, while we wait for the next book, uh, please do uh, reach out to Vitaly on all of those social media sites. In the meantime, the book is just out from Harriman House. It is Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life by Vitaly Katzenelson. Vitaly, thank you so much for uh, being a guest on the show. It's, my, it's really my pleasure. You did such a great job. The, really, I love the questions and I love how you pose them. Thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs>